0: I want to take just a moment to introduce myself. My name is Josh McLean, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and it's a privilege to be with you here this morning. Today's a special day. This is a special year. This is a year of first. And so, regularly, we celebrate this is the first time we've done something. And so, this morning, this is the first time that I've been able to say, Welcome to Easter service here at Hagerstown Church. This is our first one. So, uh, this, is a, this is an exciting day. Uh, the Lord has placed this vision and dream to, to see another Bible-believing, solid church planted here in this city and in the hearts of the the members here of this church and God's been blessing and it's been wonderful to see it. And so welcome this morning. It's, It's a privilege to be with you. Many of you guys know the name of this man. He was called the Iron Man, Cal Ripken Jr. If you were raised in this area as a child in the 80s and 90s, and you would know exactly who I'm talking about. He played for 21 seasons for the Baltimore Orioles from 1981 to 2001. He compiled 3,184 hits. 431 home runs, 1,695 runs batted in his career. Um, he won the Gold Glove Award two times. He was a 19, all, uh, 19 all-time all-star and was twice named the American League Most Valuable Player. In 2007, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, almost unanimous, the highest uh, percentage voting of all time, 98.5%. There's probably no one in this room that doesn't know who I'm talking about now you may uh, not know those stats that I just listed off I had to look a lot of those up but no doubt you know who that is and this morning I would say this as we look at the life of David and Goliath I'd say it's probably similar there's not one person in likely in this room that hasn't heard of David and Goliath And as you hear those words roll off you automatically imagine a tall man a, an extremely tall man a, a, a giant with armor and swords facing off against a young boy with a slingshot. It comes to mind, and we, we think of the underdog and the victory that God gave this young man. Each of us know the story. You might be thinking, why on Easter would you be bringing a sermon? Why would you bring a message from David and Goliath? And two reasons, really. The first reason is this. In 2019, as a church, we've committed to walk through the Bible together, and it's been a joy as we read the scriptures, we're starting in Genesis and working our way to Revelation. As we walk through together, we've committed to read together, to memorize the scriptures together, and on top of that, that I would preach a sermon. We'd bring a sermon. This, this pulpit would have a sermon on what we've talked about, what we've studied, what God has done in our lives and hearts. That week, it would come from this pulpit as well and spend a special time. And so if you say, well, why are, we, why are we looking at David and Goliath on Easter? That's why. That's not the only reason. God's providence and his sovereignty as we laid this year out and we, we said, whatever happens, happens. Whatever we preach, we'll, whatever lands there, we'll preach it. I think in God's providence, he has given us David and Goliath as a, as a picture of the life that we know to be true. As we look at David and Goliath, we'll see this morning that there is a deep connection between David and Goliath, that story, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a deep connection. And I want to take some time to show you that this morning. So those are our two reasons. There's much, there's a lot, there's quite a bit of a connection between the two, and I want to spend some time showing you those this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in First Samuel chapter 17, First Samuel chapter 17, and we'll begin reading in verse 41. Before we do, I want to set the scene. We'll read a smaller uh, portion this morning. We won't read the entire text. It's a wonderful thing in 1 Samuel. As there's the, the, the author gave quite a bit of information, several chapters, to help us understand and unpack the story of David and Goliath. We'll re- read just a portion of it. We'll begin in 41, but before we do that, I want to say this. i want to set the scene. The Philistines have come into the land of Israel, and there they are on the mountain on the mountainside, and they're looking across the valley of Elah to the other side, there's another mountain on the other side, and that's where the armies of Israel are encamped. And they've been there for some time. As a matter of fact, in verse 41, where we pick up this morning, they've been there for 40 days, more than a month. They've been facing off, and there's been uh, taunting and, and different tactics and strategy and a muscling up and armies coming and going and, and strengthening and communication between the two. It's It's mounting. Tension is mounting. And this is where we pick up this morning. Verse 41 David has come to the battle. And as he gets there, he hears Goliath cursing his God, challenging, taunting the armies of the living God of Yahweh. And he's indignant. And he decides, I will do something about this. I'm going to shut this fool's mouth, if you will. That's where we pick up in verse 41. And so read that with me. It says in 41 And the Philistines moved forward and came near to David. With his, or Philistine came near and moved forward to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine and he took his sword and he drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Would you pray with me? God, as we look at this story, and in some ways, and over time, has become larger than life even. It's permeated almost every area of our culture in some ways. We pray that you'd bless us as we look at it again this morning, that you'd help us to see what you're saying in this. We wouldn't get caught up in some side point. That we would see fully the truths that are displayed here in this story. Father, we pray again that our hearts would be nourished by this, that we would be encouraged, that where we need to repent, that we would repent. Where we need to turn, we would turn. Where we need to trust, we would trust. Where we need to grow, we would grow. And we ask these things not in our power, because that battle is not ours, it's yours. We ask them in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to tell you right at the beginning of our time this morning that uh, the, the main point of the text, it's found in the key verse. And if you are working through the reading plan, and, and by the way, that's found in the loop, and so I want to encourage you to check that out. There's also a memory verse in there. If you memorize the memory verse, that's the key verse for our passage today. That's the key verse for the passage that, that we're studying. It's this, verse 46 and 47. David speaking. This day... The Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. All the bodies of the host of the Philistines this day will be given to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. He says this, why? Why would he do that? Why, why is he hoping that this will take place? Why is he claiming that it will? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly, all the Israelites may know that God, that the Lord their God saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's, and he, David says, will give you, Goliath, into our hands. I want to tell you the story of David and Goliath is not a story about you defeating your giants. It's not. If you come here this morning to receive hope that you can defeat your giants, this is the wrong sermon for you because you cannot. It's not the point of this text that David, the underdog, would outsmart Goliath, And when, that's not the point. The point is not about you having courage in yourself. The point this morning is not you having victory over different battles that you're facing as you muscle up and power through. No, this story is not about you at all. The story is about a God who miraculously saves his people in their darkest hour from their greatest foe. Do you get that? This is a story not about you, not about David, it's a story about a God who miraculously saves his people in their darkest hour and from their greatest foe. I want to tell you here this morning, church, that that is a greater story than an underdog. It's a greater story because you won't always feel strong. You won't always feel brave. And the Lord doesn't save with sword and spear. He, the battle is his, and he will save. He will rescue. So I hope this morning that you find hope in that. And that again, your heart is nourished this morning as we look at the story of God and how he saves his people once again. Our story this morning, it actually begins with a man by the name of Saul. And he was the man chosen actually first to be the king over Israel. And he, he started out pretty well. He, the people had asked the, 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 the priest, Samuel, the judge, they said, hey, we, we want to be like the other nations around us. We, we want to have a king it's hard to imagine that God's people would, would, would just look around and want to be like those around them, but yet that's what we see taking place here. God's people saying, we want to be like everyone else. That's, we're not too different from the Philistines oftentimes. Maybe you can remember desiring a starter jacket like everybody else. Maybe you wanted to have those uh, really baggy pants, those really baggy jeans. And I'm not talking about the, 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 the 70s, I'm talking about the 90s maybe. But maybe you were, maybe back in the 70s you wanted those baggy pants as well. Or maybe you wanted the, the tight ones in the 90s. Whatever it was, you've, you've, you've looked around as a kid and you said, Mom, I want this, I want to, Dad, I want to be like them, I want to look like them. We've all been through that. The children of Israel, they're doing that as well. And on a more spiritual and serious level, they're saying, God, we don't want you to be our king We want to be like everybody else around us. We want to be like like the nations around us. In fact, they come to Samuel and they say in 1 Samuel chapter 8, maybe you remember this, uh, verses 19 and 20, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Samuel said, you don't need a king. God is your king. They reject it and they say, no, but there shall be a king over us. We will have a king that we may be like all the other nations, they say, and that our king may judge us, and get this, That our king may go out before us and fight our battles. The children of Israel had asked Samuel to ask God to give them a king so that they could have somebody who would fight their battles. That's what they wanted. And so God, wanting to give them the best that he could, he he wanted to give them himself and they wouldn't have it. And so he chooses out for them as a demonstration the tallest man in the land. So Saul is chosen to be king. He's anointed. Samuel is, uh, is told by God to anoint Saul to be king. And Samuel goes out, finds Saul, and he anoints him to be king. And, and Saul starts out well. He does pretty good. The military success that they experience at, at, the, at the onset is exciting to see. Some victories, some good things taking place. And yet, when we get to chapter 17, the forward momentum, the excitement, It comes to a halt as they face their greatest foe that they'd faced yet. They'd been in battle. They'd seen victories. They'd seen some defeat. But overall, things were going well until this time. Out of the the ranks, as they meet on that hillside there in the Valley of Elah, the sea of Philistines parts and Goliath walks through, nine foot, nine inches tall, a man's man, built armed to the teeth, covered from head to toe in armor. He's been trained from a child to defeat his enemy in battle. And yet for all of Saul's weakness, as he sees Goliath, he's intelligent enough to know that he is no match for Goliath. He's not. That's the fact of the matter. The tallest man in Israel, the king, and the irony is they'd asked for somebody to lead them in the battle and not just lead them, but to fight their battles and that man knows that he is no match for what they face, for this, for this giant across the way. And so as Saul sits in his tent, wringing his hands, nervous, not sure what to do, not sure how to, to fight, how to proceed, not sure what will take place, knowing that he can't do it, the people begin to see, maybe we've made a mistake. Maybe we made a mistake. Maybe, maybe the king that we, we have... Maybe he can't fight our battles. Maybe he can't do what we thought he would do. People begin to see that Saul was weak. Saul couldn't defeat the enemy that God's people were facing. So one thing I want to point out this morning as we talk about the parallels between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and David and Goliath is this, like Saul, Adam is weak. If you're taking notes, that's the first one, like Saul, Adam is weak. Saul was the representative. He was the head of the people of Israel. He was unable, though, to defeat their greatest enemy. And Adam, like from Adam and Eve, the first man, he is our representative head. And he, as well, was unable to defeat the enemy. He was unable to defeat the serpent. Time and again he tried, and he was unable. And we, his descendants, are also unable. Saul and his descendants, Jonathan, and the whole house of Saul, unable to defeat Goliath. All of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin and all the others there were unable to defeat the enemy. It's been true of Adam's descendants as well. His greatest sons have not been able to defeat this foe, Satan. We look back to the, the fall, what Christians call a fall, and we see that Adam led the human race into sin. As our leader, as our king in a sense, he led us into the proverbial ditch, a pit from whence none of us can escape, not on our own. And you may want to disagree here. Maybe you say, well, I don't believe in the fall. I don't believe that that all of mankind has been plunged into this sinful state. And I I would just say one thing, Sri Lanka. I would say the Herald Mail. Look around. And with humility, I say that this world that we live in is a fallen world. We see the effects all around us. We're unable, there's no man, not the greatest of us, is able to push back the darkness on our own. We're all weak. Adam, our father, is weak. Just as Saul and his descendants were unable to defeat Goliath, Adam and his descendants have been unable to defeat Satan. We have all been overcome with his temptations and his servitude that he has placed us under. We all live lives that are pleasing to ourselves and not pleasing to God. Both you and I and Adam all together, we all fall short of God's glory, and that's bad news. I want you to imagine that you're on a, a bus full of, of people just like you. The bus is picking up speed. It's rounding the corner. And as it does, the driver loses control of the bus. It hits the guardrail and careens over, flipping down, barreling down the mountain. Rest rests off this rock cliff on this edge. And as it's there, you begin to come to and you realize what has taken place. You're in pain. You look around and you see that everybody else has been injured as well, including the driver. Each of you are lifeless, essentially. You're helpless. You even begin to smell gasoline. It's worthless for you to even think of getting out of that that, that bus because if you could get out of that crushed up bus, you could not, even in your strength, even in your health, you couldn't climb that mountain. You couldn't climb that cliff. That picture there is similar to where we find ourselves today as a result of Adam's leading us into sin and us following willingly it's a similar state that we find ourselves in you and I we're the passengers Adam's the driver neither you or I or he we we're, we're incapable of rescuing ourselves and when the Bible speaks of our predicament that we're in it says not that you're wounded Not that you're weak in sin, but it says that we're dead in our sins, that we ourselves are dead and unable to choose God, unable to do what's right, unable to fight even, unable to climb, not barely dead, or not barely limping, not weak, dead. This is what the Bible says about us. As we look at this picture of the Israelites there on that side, they're they're essentially dead. They're basically without hope. They're facing off on that hill against the champion, Goliath. Look down at verse 4. It says, There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Again, nine foot nine inches tall. He's, he has to duck if he goes under the basketball hoop, right? He's right there. He's a big old boy. And your Bible probably uses the word champion like mine does. And it, it, that could be a, a little bit misleading. It's an interesting word, champion. It doesn't actually mean the best of the best. The word champion actually means the man in between the two. And what it's speaking of is this, this uh, idea that the, was common in, Philist- in Philistine warfare, that they would, uh, in order to preserve life and ma- make a bit of a sport, they would face off against one of their uh, enemies and they would put forth a champion that would go in between the two armies. And they, and that champion would ask for them to send their champion. And those two men would go in between the camps and they would fight. They would do battle. And whatever happened, you know the story. If David were to win, what would happen? Then the Philistines would serve the Israelites. Right? It sounds like they would do that. It Sounds like, a, it sounds like you can trust the Philistines, right? So the opposite would be true, though, if, if the Philistines, if Goliath were to win, then the Israelites would serve the Philistines. And by the way, that's essentially where they're at this morning. They're already there. The Philistines are a much greater army, much stronger physically speaking. And so they choose the, the weapon, they choose the location, they choose the sport, like the, like the big kid at, at, uh, at, at, um, at recess, right? The biggest kid chooses what game you play. And he typically chooses the one he's best at, and that's Goliath, right? He knows what he's best at. He's best at hand-to-hand combat. Nobody can stand as he swings his sword. There's no blocking it. You're dead. So the Israelites are essentially goners. In a sense, they're dead in their sin. I remember first hearing of war and battle as a maybe a 10, 9-year-old boy, and thinking, how could this be? Why would, in this day and age, with civilized humans, why would we kill each other? Why wouldn't we just do a boxing match? And I thought of a similar scenario to this. Why couldn't we just box and box the Germans or box whoever? And that's how we would decide who would win our wars. This is what the, the Philistines are facing right here. And so, the Philistines send out their biggest, they send out their baddest, they meet in the middle the the Israelites haven't sent a guy out yet it's been 40 days and Goliath's been taunting the armies of the Lord he's saying send out your champion if you can the Philistines look around, they don't see any movement they see signs of trembling and fear the Israelites look around and nobody's coming forward nobody's raising their hands nobody, nobody wants to do anything and yet when David comes forward it's a beautiful thing what does Goliath ask David whenever he sees him? He says, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? When, when, Saul, uh, when, when Goliath asks that question in verse 8, why have you come out to draw up the battle? It, it points to, to something What's a deeper part of the context here. That the Israelites were subservient to the Philistines. Saul had already in his mind won the battle and was saying, why are you guys rebelling? Why don't you go back to your homes and continue to be our servants? We can do what we want. We're going to take your land. We're going to take what we want. We're going to rule this place. And the fact that the the Israelites were there even is saying, Goliath is hinting at here that they're rebelling. They're there to renegotiate terms. Saul is saying, uh, Goliath says, Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? He said, "I'm a Philistine, you remember, right? And, and you guys are servants of Saul. you guys serve us, and Saul serves us. So you should and you serve Saul. They've come to fight. They've come to battle. They're there to renegotiate terms. 40 days this goes on though, and there's not a man to come out and lead them in the battle. Remember, Saul was set aside by God to be the one who would lead them, that would fight their battles. I firmly believe that Saul, it was his job to defeat Goliath. And that God demonstrates to us that it doesn't matter how tall you are. It doesn't matter how strong you are, how good looking you are. It doesn't, those things don't matter. The battle is the Lord's and he will give it into your hand. I think it's worth mentioning just for a second here as we think of this life of Saul. Saul comes from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin's or Benjamites, not Benjamins, were known for their ability to sling stones. That's that's the nation that we know was gifted not only in battle, but specifically they were marksmen with a slingshot. And yet David from the tribe of Judah is the one out facing Goliath. Saul is war-hardened. David is not. Saul is the tallest. David is not. David, it says here he was ruddy and and handsome. He's saying he had a baby face. Why? Because he's a kid. Right? The contrast is, is beautiful there. This goes on for 40 days and finally David comes forward to fight Goliath. If you look at this, the, the description of Goliath, it gets interesting when we see that the only time in the entire scriptures that the word "their coat of mail, is used to describe armor is when it's describing Saul here. Every other time that the coat of mail is used in the Bible, it's speaking of either fish or serpents or dragons. Every other time. And the Bible often refers to Satan as the serpent. As the dragon, he's the snake, he's the serpent in in, in Genesis, he's the dragon in Revelation. He is the one armed with a coat of mail, with a coat of scales. I think it's interesting here, the connection is clear, that Goliath is a picture of Satan. This is a true story, it's a real occurrence. And, And the author here is pointing out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this man is a representative, is a picture of Satan. He's calling out to the the Israelites. He's calling out to God's people. He's condemning them. He's taunting them. What does it mean to taunt somebody? What does it mean to defy somebody? To tease? To ridicule? To belittle? To accuse? He's oppressive, Goliath is. The Philistines are oppressive. They're in the Israelites' land. Here's what I want you to see. That Goliath, like Satan, is oppressive. That Goliath, like Satan, is an oppressor. He oppresses Satan in the Bible, he's the tempter. He desires to lead both sinner and saint away from the Lord into rebellion against God, and he's the accuser of the brethren. He reminds those of, who are Christ of all the, the guilt in their past. He reminds them of that. This is what Goliath is doing. He's taunting the children of Israel. He's the serpent. He's reminding them of all, of all the battles that they've lost in their past, all the, their own personal weaknesses and shortcomings. He's bringing that back in front of them. And like Goliath, he's calling to you this morning to submit to him and to serve him. He's calling you to listen. I would warn you this morning that Satan is no match. I'm sorry, you are no match for Satan. Just as David in his, in his own power, Goliath, or I'm sorry, as Saul in his own power, and any of the Israelites in their own power were no match for Goliath. It's the same way we're no match for Satan. Goliath's patiently waiting for someone to destroy. The New Testament says that Satan is the same way. That he walks about seeking whom he may devour. Even this morning, patiently looking for his next kill. Goliath and Satan both oppressing God's people. If you're here this morning and you find this to be a, a troublesome truth, that Satan is seeking. Whom he may devour, and that just like Goliath was looking for somebody to kill, looking to enslave the people of God. And if that brings trouble to your heart, I want to bring a little bit more. Remember that Saul was no match, and his descendants were no match. Jonathan was no match. He wasn't able to rescue. Jonathan and Saul and you and me were on that bus together. We need somebody outside of ourselves to rescue. Somebody outside of ourselves to come to our aid. And there as the Israelites face off against the Philistines with Goliath in the middle, situation looks bleak and walks David. i will to point out a few things about David quickly. The first is this, that David was obedient. David was obedient. Look at verse 17 there in chapter 17. It says that David's father had told him to go to battle. Not to do battle, but he had told him to be at the battlefield, and so David shows up. He's obeying his father. His place was not in the battlefield. He wasn't old enough to be there. Uh, Most most experts say that, well, actually, we know this from the book of Leviticus, that you had to be 20 years old to be in the Israelite army. If David's not there, he's not 20 years old, and that's not his place, and yet he's obeying his father. He's, He's supposed to be at his father's house, and yet he's there on the battlefield. He's supposed to be tending sheep and yet he's tending to his brothers. And so we see of David that he's obedient to his father. Another thing I want to point out to you about David is that David is unique. He's the youngest guy there, right? And everybody else is strapped with swords and spears and even the enemy is and yet David doesn't have either of those things. He has a stick and he has a stone, right? he got a leather strap. David was using wielding weapons not made with human hands. The, the stone was polished and rounded in that stream. Not by a man, but by God. And that, that, that stick, that staff that he had in his hand, it grew straight and sturdy all by itself. They were shaped by God. They, they hadn't been pulled. These weapons that David had uniquely, they weren't pulled out of a f- furnace forged by man. They weren't made with human hands at all. And it points to the fact that these weapons that David would wield were the weapons of the Lord, not manufactured by man. So David's unique, young, out of place, using weapons that nobody else would even think of or even maybe possibly know how to wield in the face of danger. So David's a unique individual, but not only is he unique, but he's also reverent. You see, David decided to fight Goliath not when he saw his dangerous presence. David wasn't looking for a fight. He didn't come to the battle to fight, but he was ready to fight when he heard this irreverent irreverent defiance. That's when David... Became ready to fight. That's when David submitted himself to fight Goliath. He was a reverent young man. Goliath cursed David David by his gods, verse 43 says. And the word curse, you should cue in on that. Remember that God promised Abraham, what did he say? He said, I will bless anyone who blesses you or your descendants. He said, I'll curse anyone who curses you or your descendants. And here we have what? Goliath cursing David. So the promise that God had given to Abraham that had rang true throughout all of Israel over the last 500 years was, or, or, or I'm sorry, 900 years was coming true in this moment. You're seeing it take place. David was reverent. He believed that God would fight his battle. And that as he heard this curse, he knew that God would give him into his hand. What more, what more Goliath is guilty of blasphemy? The Bible teaches that whether you're a Israelite or not, in those days, if you committed blasphemy, you were to be stoned. So David, recognizing the law that he is under, the obligation that he has to shut the mouth of the blasphemer, what does he do? He goes down and he gets the stone. He will stone, even if he's stone this giant, even if he's by himself. And so he walks down in there with his sling in hand. He swings it around and he slings it so hard that it sinks into the head of that giant. Goliath had been chanting, swords and spears may make me fear, but sticks and stones will never hurt me. That's how the, the original version used to go. And then when he fell forward dead, then the Philistines began to say, well, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. This is, this is when it, that took place. This is when it shifted. Goliath falls forward similar to the statue of Dagon, right? Just a few uh, chapters earlier, we had read that when the Ark of God had been placed in the, the temple of Dagon, when the Philistines came in the next day, they their God, so to speak, had fallen forward and his head was off. His hands were, had been removed. David, when, he, when, when Goliath falls to the ground, he walks forward and he cuts his head off, similar to the statue of Dagon, demonstrating that, that God who destroyed Dagon is the same God who destroyed Goliath with sticks and stones. Don't miss this last one. See this about David, too, that he was victorious. David walked down into the valley with no armor or tactical training. He wasn't a soldier. He walked in there in faith. And Saul, along with David's three brothers, Eliab, Shammah, and Abinadab, they're looking at David and they're thinking, this, might be, this is likely the last time that we'll see him alive. As they watch him go in, and it's, it's something interesting to say, what, what a tribute that David was. You've got to know that his heart was in the right place. They think that as he walks away, and they think he was a good boy. That he would try to do this. is just amazing that he would sacrifice himself in a way. Maybe even the, the Israelites are thinking he's, he's going to lose, but, but maybe, Saul is thinking, maybe this young man giving his life will incite power and courage in the, in the lives of the Israelites. And they'll, they'll rush in and still face the Philistines. And maybe they're, in some way they'll be able to, to defeat it. Defeat this enemy. David is more than just a tribute. David's more than just a sacrifice. He's more than just a good example to the Israelites. He's far more than that. David is victorious. You see, they both go into that valley and whoever walks out is victorious. Whoever walks out their, their side will rule the other. Right? It wasn't enough for David to just sacrifice himself to go into that valley and to die. What good would that have done? That wasn't the point. David comes out victorious. If he stayed in there, he would have been defeated. But he walked out. He was the the victor. He was the deliverer. It's interesting also to know that David had been anointed to be the new king of Israel. In the New and the Old Testament, when when we think of this idea of anointing, it's the same idea, it's the same word as Messiah. I just want to point this out. There's a a strong connection between David and Jesus. Let me say this, that David, like Jesus, is our deliverer. David, like Jesus, is our deliverer. You see, Jesus was obedient. He went to the cross to obey his father. He was obedient even to the death of the cross. Jesus was unique. He taught, he prayed, he lived like no one else. No one else, ultimately, utterly unique. He defeated death, hell, and the grave like no one could. He was unique. Jesus was reverent. He came to fulfill the law and not to destroy it. Jesus was victorious. As as Jesus went to the cross, his disciples, along with Satan and the crowd, they, they looked at him and they thought, it's over. It's done. What more is there? His life is snuffed out. And while he was a great example, he's not victorious. This is what they thought in their minds. Death and Satan, they thought that they were waiting to defeat Jesus at the the cross. They thought they had lured him in and they had received victory. But Jesus had lured them to the cross. And there he would defeat them in the presence of all. Jesus had done this. He had lured them in knowing his strengths. Knowing he would be victorious. Triumphed over death, hell, and the grave. Over sin. And the truth is, David knew what he could do with a stone. He knew how nimble he was. He knew how lightweight and he knew how heavy the armor was on Goliath. He knew that he had the tactical edge. As David walked out of that valley, so Jesus walked out of the grave. And had he not, had he not walked out of that grave, we would have been of all men, as Paul says, most miserable. We would have been of all men to be pitied most. Both David and Jesus were victorious and they gave their sides victory as well. Do you see that this morning? That David was victorious and so was Jesus. And if you think about this, did the Israelites even lift a finger? Did they they even lift a finger? No. No. The greatest enemy in the darkest hour had been defeated by a boy with sticks and stones. He used the very weapon that Goliath had said he would use on David, he, David used it on Goliath to end it all. And as he holds the head up in victory, and the people, his people, cheer, and they run through the valley and they chase after the Philistines in victory, and they, they never even lost a, left a, left, uh, lifted a finger to experience this victory that David had paved the way for. So David walks out of that valley and Jesus walks out of the grave. I'm going to park there just for a moment as we consider the resurrection of Jesus. Some of you might be thinking in your mind, what is the big deal? What is so great? Isn't it, isn't it all about the cross, Jesus' work? Isn't that what Christians celebrate so much? And, and while it is, Jesus was not just a sacrifice, an example, he was a victorious sacrifice. You see, the, the, for years the Jews had sacrificed. For years God had told them, every year they were to sacrifice. And that, that, the blood of that lamb, in a sense, would take away the sins of that family. When Jesus appears before John the Baptist, and John sees him walking, he says to him, he says, of him, to the crowds, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. They begin to realize at that moment that the blood of those lambs could never take away the sins of the people. Could never do it. They could never make things right. Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could not wash away sin. And so the lamb, every single lamb that had been sacrificed for the sins of the people was unable to take away the sins and not only was it unable to take away the sins, it was also unable to resurrect. And Jesus the lamb who takes away the sin of the world is the lamb who resurrects. Christians, this morning, we are like Israel. We are victorious. We look at the cross and we see the, the, the seriousness of our sin. We see the sincerity of God's love toward us. But at the empty tomb, we see the sufficiency of his sacrifice. The resurrection is confirmation. Listen to this. It's confirmation that Jesus' death on the cross was able and effective as it went to remove God's wrath towards those who would repent and believe in him. It it verified it. It proved its effectiveness, that Jesus could walk out of the grave. Now think about the application of that. Because Jesus walked out of the grave, it says that now what we are placing our faith in is effective. And now there's no condemnation for us if we are in Christ. There's nothing. So as we come to a close this morning, as we think and meditate and we see the empty tomb, what are we to do as a result of that? The first thing I would say is that we are to repent. We're to repent. We're to turn from our sin as we see the seriousness of the cross. That like God does not wink at sin. He doesn't He doesn't laugh at it. He doesn't look the other way when He sees our, our, our actions, whether they be heinous in our minds or not. We see the seriousness of God and His wrath. And we repent. So this morning I would call you. Not 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 don't repent to me. Don't repent because of the the weakness of, of your decisions that you've made. Repent because a holy God will judge you for it. His wrath burns against those who have not. So repent. Another application for us this morning as we consider the cross, as we consider, more importantly, the resurrection, is to rejoice. Rejoice this morning, Christian, that we have an opportunity to be forgiven of our sins. And it's in an effective way. Imagine a time when somebody has volunteered to do something for you, to maybe to pay for something or to take you somewhere. And as they go to do it, they're ineffective, they're in, unable to complete the task and you're left with nothing. Jesus is not that way. As we look at the empty tomb, we see that Jesus, and his sacrifice on the cross is effective and we rejoice in that. What, what celebration that we have to do today? Of all men, we are not most miserable. Of all men, we are most likely and, and necessary to rejoice. We have what it takes to truly celebrate. We've been forgiven. Two more. As we look, as we walk through our lives, we realize this as Christians, another application as we think of the cross and we think of the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb. We realize this, that we're not slaves to sin here in the present. We're no longer slaves to sin. Think about the fact that David defeated Goliath. And what happened when he did? When he cut off the head, what happened to God's enemies? God's, the, the enemies of God's people, what did they do? They ran. They ran. Just a moment ago, it happened so fast. The, the, it's mounting, it's, it's building. The story is fleshing out and all of a sudden, bam, he's dead, he's on the ground. And they're celebrating and they're running. And that's where we are today. We recognize that we are no longer slaves to sin. Goliath's mouth is not running saying that we are servants to him anymore. His tongue has stopped. So as Christians today we recognize that we are no longer slaves to sin. Because of the cross. Because Jesus walked out of the tomb. Because David walked up out of the valley. And Goliath stayed there. Because of that, we are no longer slaves to sin, not in the present. So walk in that. Walk in that faith and that truth, knowing that you can, and by faith you can see that God, Jesus' son, Jesus' God's son has cut off the head of our enemy. And not only that, but another application is that we live with no fear of death in the future. This morning, as our brothers and sisters mourn the loss of their family members in Sri Lanka, we know this, that we in the face of death have nothing to fear. Jesus said to his disciples, don't fear somebody who can kill the body or harm the body. He said, fear the one who can harm the body and the soul in Sheol, in hell. The, the opposite of that is true. Celebrate that the one who can destroy or preserve life has preserved ours, Christian, because of Our faith in Christ that he has given to us because of our repentance, we can experience this hope that we will never be hopeless. We'll never be, uh, we'll, we'll experience pain in the face of death. but We should never be hopeless in the face of death. Death has been cheated. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What can man do to you? Romans 8 says that we cannot be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, that has been extended to us. So while death is painful, we pray for healing as those who mourn. And maybe you've experienced that even lately in your own life. There's still a sting there. But the ultimate power of death has been removed because of the work of Christ, because he defeated death. As he resurrected under his own power and we live with hope to looking forward to the fact that we will one day experience a life that is fully restored to where it should be where it was to be free of pain and free of sin as we close this morning i want to leave you with a poem i think it, it touched my heart as i read it and i want to read it slowly I want you to enjoy this and be truly find find some sustenance in this as a believer this morning this is true of you death and darkness get you packing nothing now to man is lacking all your triumphs now are ended and what Adam marred is mended graves are beds now for the weary death a nap to make more merry youth now full of pious duty seeks in thee for perfect beauty. The weak, the aged, tired the, with length of days from Thee look new, look for new strength, and infants with Thy pangs contest as pleasant as if with the breast. Then unto Him who has who thus hath throned, even to contempt Thy kingdom down. But by His blood did us advance unto His own inheritance. To Him be glory, power, praise. From this unto the last of days. Church, celebrate in that this morning. Death has no victory over us. In in the face of our greatest enemy, God miraculously saves his people in their darkest hour and from their greatest enemy. Rejoice in that. Let's pray. Father, this morning we celebrate these truths. that your son would die for us. And while we marvel at that and we wonder at these truths, we pray that you would nourish us by them. As we gather in this place, that we wouldn't just come, that we wouldn't just hear somebody rant and rave, but that we would truly be encouraged, your people, that we would be fed by the, the truths of your word. God, we see You are not a slouch. You you look at our sins. And you, as a righteous judge, will judge us. The soul that sins, it shall die. And yet we see the, the, the sincerity of your love that you would extend this opportunity to us this morning. What great love! What great sacrifice! God, we see that you are victorious, that Jesus' work on the cross satisfied your demands, the demands of a holy judge. So this morning, as we consider the resurrection, this Sunday and next Sunday and every Sunday in 2019, and as we go as a people, we find courage to know that we can repent that we should rejoice, that we should live without fear of sin in our lives now under its rule and reign, and without fear of death, because from, to, to be absent from the body is to be present with you, our King. We thank you for these truths. We ask that we be blessed in them. and It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.